0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning again. Uh, glad to be back here with you. Again, my name is Josh. Um, if you just started coming around this summer, you haven't seen me up here in a while. I. Uh, have been working in the month of july but working ahead and so you've been well served i think by all the other guys doing some teaching uh throughout the summer and i'm here this week i'm actually gone next week i'm I'm teaching at our um our planting church uh but then after that you get a whole lot of me for a while so uh i guess i'm saying you know get ready. I don't know know, uh, what else to say about that. But um, I am glad to be able to dip back in and and be part of the series because we've been, um, as we've been looking at the series on the life of David, you know, one of the things we've been saying is that uh, David's story is the single most extended story uh, other than Jesus in the entirety of the Bible. And, And so just by airtime alone, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you really can't understand the message of the Old Testament without at least understanding a little bit about David's life. And actually, even more than that, I don't think you can even understand the New Testament without knowing at least a little something about David's story, because after all, how does the New Testament begin? The very first verse, the Gospel of Matthew, it starts, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so Matthew and the other gospel writers, they want to tell us about Jesus. And first thing, what do they say? He's the son of David. Or think about all the Christmas texts we read about the angels coming and announcing the birth of Jesus. And what do they say? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So unless you understand at least something of the story of David... We can't understand the message of the Bible, we can't understand the story of Jesus, or at least if we don't have that, we'll be deficient uh, to some extent in our understanding. And so that's why we're doing this series. David's life is really, really important to the overall scope of the biblical narrative and uh, the larger story of the Bible. And this incident that Jenny just read to us from Second Samuel chapter 7 may just be the center or the hub of David's whole life. You know, the joke used to be like you can't fly anywhere in the United States without a stop in Atlanta, right? The hub, you know, or at least on Delta, that's probably true, right? You always have to stop in Atlanta to get anywhere else in, in the United States. Well, you can't get anywhere in David's story without a stop somewhere along the way in 2 Samuel 7. It's that important to David's self-understanding and then why the rest of the Bible treats David's story is so important for the rest of the biblical narrative. This is the story of the covenant that God makes with David. And so as we walk through the text this morning, I want you to think about it in three ways or think, think through the text uh, uh, in, in three movements. Uh, number one, David has a plan. Number two, God has a different plan. And then number three, David has to figure out, what do I do when that's the case? God has a, or David has a plan. God has a different plan. How does he respond to that? All right, so here we go. David has a plan. Now, as the start of this chapter, things are going really well for David. This may be the high water mark for him. And if you ever played, like I did, the uh, Nintendo game NBA Jam growing up, uh, yeah, I see a few hands even, all right? Uh, an NBA Jam, after your player would make three shots in a row, the announcer would say, he's on. Fire, exactly right. And then you could shoot from anywhere on the court and it would go in automatically, even if it was a full court shot. Totally unrealistic, by the way. He's on fire, right? Here in this story, David's on fire. Goliath is dead. Saul is dead. David is alive, very much alive, and the people are united behind him. He had a series of impressive victories against the Philistines, right? Their old pesky enemies, the thorn in the flesh of Israel. David has managed to consolidate the country, to unite these tribes, right? The tribal identity was very strong. This identity as a whole nation of Israel was pretty new, and David unites them together. He establishes a new capital city in Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to reside there. David is on fire. All the momentum, right, is going his way. And so quite naturally then... He wants to do something for the Lord in the midst of this. This is a a good impulse. And so he goes to his pastor, Nathan the prophet, and he talks this over. He says, Nathan, I'm living in this new palace made of expensive, beautiful cedar wood, and I'm not going to lie, Nathan, it's pretty awesome, but I'm starting to feel bad because the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, it's just residing in this nasty old tent. Now, remember, the tabernacle was was a tent, an elaborate tent, but a tent nonetheless. That's where the priests would do their work, where they would make their uh, offerings, where the priests would come to do their sacrifices. But you've got to remember where we are in the story. The tabernacle now is 300 years old, all right? An elaborate tent, but I don't care what kind of tent it is, 300 years, and it starts to wear, right? It's faded, it's threadbare, perhaps smelly and moldy. And David says, I just, I got to build a house for the Lord. Now, how does Nathan respond to this? Well, how would any pastor respond when a wealthy donor comes and says, I want to build you a brand new sanctuary for your ministry? Go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you, right? That's what he says, like any pastor would say. But later that night, Nathan has some pause. And here's how Eugene Peterson puts it. He said, there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. That's what Nathan realized that night. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. So God speaks to Nathan and he tells him to revoke this building permit, right? He previously greenlit it, go and do all that the Lord has put in your heart. Uh, Now it's revoked. And then there's a a couple of verses here of explanation. God speaking to David through Nathan. And Tim Keller points out that in his writing on this, he says that there are um, really two important principles that come out of the way that God explains himself here, why why, uh, he's rejecting David's plans. Two important principles about how God works in the world. And the first one is what you might call the incarnational principle. Verse 6, God says, in all the years, did I ever ask anyone to build me a house? Answer, nope. And here's the reason, David. I am not a God who stands far off. I'm not a God who just looks down from an ivory tower. I am a God who comes near. I am a God who dwells with my people. I traveled with them when they left their slavery in Egypt. When they wandered in the desert, I was there with them to guide them and provide for them and protect them. When they were in need, I was right there among them. When they were wandering, I was wandering. When they're poor, I am poor. When they suffer, I suffer. And though, David, you've had a good go of it lately, I'm not going to have a house until my people are established. We have a God who comes near. We have a God who is, goes with his people. The incarnational principle. But there's a second principle here about how God works in the world, and that's what you might call the grace principle. Now, it doesn't seem like it, but David is in a very dangerous place here. It's a place called success. Because when you're on fire, like David is here at this time, it's easy, very easy, to be more full of yourself then you are full of God. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God's saying, David, remember where you came from? David, where were you when my call came into your life? The answer is, you were out in the fields. You were with the sheep. You were with the livestock. And listen, shepherding is fine work, but it's not prestigious work. And it's certainly not the normal career path somebody takes to sitting on the royal throne. God says, David, I took you from the lowest place and I brought you to the highest place. I did that, David. This was my work. Verse 9, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. David's a good general. But who is ultimately responsible for all of these victories? God says, David, I'm the one who drove your enemies away before you. I'm the one who's going to make your name great among the nations. And God here is the first person subject of 23 verbs in this section. All the work is God's work. God is the one who's driving the action, moving the plan, directing the mission. David, you want to build me a house, but no, I'm going to build you one. Now, this is important because uh, you have to understand, in the ancient world, it was very normal for a new king to build a temple to his god. And uh, when the temple was created, when it was constructed, there would very often be an inscription on the side of, uh, you know, somewhere on the stone uh, of the temple. And uh, we have all kinds of examples of this, by the way, from archaeology and from history. Uh, And the inscription would say something like, a temple to the sun god Ra, dedicated by King Tutmos." The idea being, right, a king would build a temple to his god, and then the god, in response to this, would bless the king. Establish his rule. Give him long life and great success. And fundamentally, this is actually how all religion works. You do something for God. You build something for God. You give something to God. You give something up for God. You sacrifice something for God. And then God will bless you. That's how every religion works. I do something for God. God will then Do something for me. But God here is saying to David, I don't operate like that. I'm not like these other gods. I am a God of sheer grace. My relationship with you is not something you earned, David, and it's not something you can continue to earn. This is grace, unmerited favor. You're not gonna build me a house, David. I'm gonna build you one. This is a crucial moment for David to understand this and for all of God's people to understand as they watch this happen or as they read about it afterwards. David has a plan. But then secondly, we see, right, God has a totally different plan. And we already talked about it a good bit, but look down at verse 11, so we are really clear here. Uh, Verse 11 says, From this time I appointed my judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then he goes on to say, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. Now, when David was talking about building God a house, he meant a literal physical structure, right? A building, a temple. But God here is using house in a a different sense. Like we might say the house of Tudor or something like that, right? In the sense of a family, a a reign, a rule, a dynasty, a kingdom. And he goes on to tell, so so David says, you know, uh, I'll build you a temple, And God says, counter-promise, right? I have something better. I'll build you a dynasty, David. I'm going to build you a kingdom. And he goes on to tell David that this dynasty, it can't be stopped. Death won't stop it. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So David will die, but this kingdom will go on. Your offspring will sit on the throne. So death won't stop it. Time won't stop it. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. So David's not going to be the one to build the temple, but one of his sons will. Continuing on, verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There's no expiration date on my promises, David. Death won't stop it. Time won't stop it. Sin won't even stop it. Verse 14, I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Sin will bring about my fatherly discipline, but it won't stop my love. The theologians call this the Davidic covenant God's promise to David that from his line will come the true king and the everlasting kingdom from your line David will come the one who ultimately will bring healing to this world and that really is the um, the role of a king isn't it kings and rulers governors and so on right they're supposed to bring healing they're supposed to make it a good place to live for all the people who live in that kingdom. Kings are meant to, at least the kings that are lauded uh, and applauded, all right, they give rest to their people. They bring justice. They establish peace. They bring prosperity and abundance and flourishing. And David is being promised here that one of your descendants will not just be a king, but the king. And will not just have a kingdom, but will rule in the eternal kingdom. Now, two things here, just a note from this, all right, two things that we learn about the way the Bible talks about salvation that are really important, right, because this notion of God's uh, covenants as they open up for us and ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus, right, they all tell us something about uh, salvation and how it comes into the world. And the first thing I just want you to note here is that salvation, this is the way God chooses to work in the world, salvation comes to the world through a king. Salvation comes to the world through a king. And there's a reason the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Gospel writers are all saying, uh, He's here. He's finally here. The long-awaited king from the line of David is here, and His name is Jesus. And the, pages, the rest of the pages of the New Testament go on to Uh, shore up and establish and communicate how Jesus really is this long-awaited Son of David. And death can't stop Him. He came to triumph over death and the grave, and sin can't stop Him. Jesus came to pay the debt, the human race owed to God and to justice. He does this by taking our place on the cross. By His wounds, we are healed. Time can't stop him. He rose again from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he lives and reigns forever. His kingdom has no end. Jesus fulfills the incarnational principle. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Dwelt among us. That's John chapter 1, where it literally says he tabernacles among us. In Jesus Christ, God came near. He moved into the neighborhood. He didn't stay far off, but he came close. And Jesus fulfills the grace principle. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is grace. We didn't earn it. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation comes to the world through the king, and his name is Jesus. The second thing to note here is that salvation is likened in Scripture to a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And this is important to see, I think, because in, in sort of Western pop culture, we tend to think of uh, salvation as either primarily and maybe even entirely as individual and spiritual. In the West, we tend to think of salvation as uh, uh, individual and spiritual. Individual meaning we, we think of God saving a person here and saving a person there. That's what God is doing. But listen here, if this is an eternal kingdom that we're talking about, then that means there is a communal nature to our salvation, that God isn't just saving individuals, but He's building for Himself a people, a community, a nation, a kingdom. I said we also tend to think of salvation as primarily or maybe even entirely spiritual. That is, God is redeeming my soul. But note that the hope that's given to David here is that there will be an everlasting kingdom, a place where the king will reign, a place where wrongs will be made right, where true justice and peace will be established, where the poor and the downtrodden will be lifted up, a place where there will be rest from enemies. And there's this great place in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about the implications of this, thinking about a kingdom. Lewis writes this. He says, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks that God made the world space and time, heat and cold, all the colors and taste, the animals and the vegetables, all the things that God had made. But Christianity also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with this world and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. When we become subjects of this kingdom, when we become ambassadors even of this coming kingdom, we are enlisted to join in the efforts of the king. If kings bring peace and healing and renewal, then the work of the church is to join in that mission as well. And so we proclaim the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, but we also go into the world and live amongst the broken and the hurting. We rehab homes and start schools and work in hospitals and tutor at WizKids and support orphan care ministries like Back to Back and provide meals and visit the sick and check in on our neighbors and visit prisoners and do job training at CityLink and on and on and on. Because if God's salvation is not just the whisking away of disembodied souls, but the coming of a new kingdom, them, then all of this matters. It all matters. So David had a plan. God has a different plan. Now, the third point this morning, last point, is how does David respond to that? Now, there, there are really two reasons that I think the story is, uh, is here for us in Scripture. One, and what we've been talking about mainly so far, is what you might call a, a theological point, right? A theological reason. Um, God's covenants working through uh, throughout the story of Scripture, how God uh, brings his healing, brings his uh, salvation into the world. And, and David's uh, covenant is one stop along those lines, all of them culminating in Jesus. And so one reason to have this story here is the theological uh, principle of, of, of this covenant and being able to understand the story of Scripture, but there's a second reason, and you might call this just a practical reason, that I think this story is here for us. And the story is, is in the Bible, is in here, at least in part, to help us know what to do when we find out that our plans are not God's plans. Or I should say that God's plans are not what we had hoped. They're not our plans. So what do you do when you don't get the job that you want? Right? I bet you've had something like this happen to you. Right? It could be a literal job right? that you've been passed over for or you've tried to figure out how to get into and you can't. Right? They pick somebody else. The doors seem closed to you. Or it could be something to do with ministries. You're thinking about uh, a passion that you have that never seems to materialize, a, a role in the church that you wish you had but you don't for some reason, a, a great idea that you have that no one else seems to get as fired up about as you do, or maybe it's more intimate and personal, right? A role that you wish you had with others. You wanna deepen that friendship and it's not reciprocated in the same way. Or you long to be a parent and it's not happening. You wish you were married and it doesn't seem like there are options. All of these things are disappointing, sometimes even crushing. So what do we do? What does David do here? First, David prays. Verse 18 says, David went in and sat before the Lord. Quote Eugene Peterson again here. He says, David sat. This may be the single most critical act that David ever did, the action that put him out of action. More critical than killing Goliath. More critical than honoring Saul as God's anointed. More critical than bringing the ark to Jerusalem. More critical because what David now does in response to Nathan's pastoral prophetic counsel will either qualify or disqualify him for the king work which which he has been anointed, trained, preserved, and empowered. So this is a moment where we figure out what kind of king David is actually going to be. So what do kings do? Especially in the ancient world, but I think generally speaking, everyone, what do kings do? They leverage power, right? Kings, especially in the ancient world, impose their will. Kings make things happen. Kings assert their domination. But David sat before the Lord the action that put him out of action, to use Peterson's words. He prayed. He communed with God. This is an act of submission. David prays, but here we see also that he submits. And verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter, is his prayer. And we didn't read it all this morning, but you can go back and look through it. But I think what's striking about it is the number of times that David refers to himself in the prayer as your servant, O Lord. All the way through, your servant, O oh Lord, your servant, O oh Lord, your servant, O oh Lord. Maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal, but you've got to remember, how was David addressed? How did David think of himself? How, how, what was his position everywhere else? David is the king, right? To everyone else and in every other place in the world, David was a king. But here, before the Lord, David is a servant, and he's acknowledging this. And we need to acknowledge this as we wrestle through disappointment. Obedience to the true king means that we need to allow for God to say no to us, even when we think we have a really good plan. And just because we can't think of a good reason why God would say no, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a good reason. The Lord is king. We are not. David wrestles through this, he prays, he submits, and then finally he trusts. This is a hard one. You know, it's one thing to submit to the rule of God. You know, some of you have military backgrounds, you know, you get the idea of proper chain of command, right? We can can do that sometimes, right? We can just understand authority and where it is and we can submit to God's rule, but it's another thing entirely to believe then that he really has our best interests in mind verse 28 David says this and now O Lord God you are God your words are true and you've promised this good thing to your servant can you hear David sort of reasoning with himself here he says you are God your words are true you do what you promise and your promises are good He's working this out, even in his prayer, right? Reminding himself of things that he knows are true of God, even in the midst of disappointment, even in the midst of hearing a no or a a not yet. This is a helpful thing for all of us to repeat to ourselves when we feel like God's plans can't possibly be as good as the ones we would lay out for ourselves. You are God. Your words are true. You do what you promise. Your promises are good. Now, we should say here, and you might have picked up on this or maybe already thinking this in the back of your mind, David does in this story uh, get something that most of us don't get in our own wrestling on this kind of thing, right? He gets Nathan the prophet who comes to him and specifically tells him what the will of God is, right? That is probably for most of us not something we get. Uh, that directly or that clearly or that specifically. And so we have to say, to some extent, David has an advantage over us, right? He has some more knowledge. But that's actually only partially true because there is something that we know that David doesn't know. You see, David was told that one of his descendants would come and heal the wounds of this world through the establishment of an eternal kingdom. But David didn't know who. David didn't know when. David didn't know that it would be Jesus Christ. David didn't know that Jesus would not just come near to his people, but he would take on flesh and walk among his people, that he would live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. David had some inkling, perhaps, but but he didn't know what we know. That Jesus would die and rise again to defeat our greatest enemies, and that even now He sits in heaven interceding for us, pleading our case for us, better than we ever could do. You see, in all our confusion and frustration at plans delayed or denied, we do know something more clearly than even David did. We know that whatever the reason is that our plans are frustrated, That reason cannot be that God doesn't care. We don't know why it would be, but we know that it can't be that God doesn't care. Romans 8, the Apostle Paul's riffing on this same kind of thing. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things, Whatever the reason our plans are delayed or denied, it cannot be that God doesn't care. We know that he does. He's given us Jesus Christ. So David prays. David submits. David trusts. And that's a good word for us because I promise you, you will find yourself in a, a period like this. You will have some plans in your life that God will just bless and you will have other plans in your life and, and, and you will think it is a great thing. But then you'll discover that God's plans are different than yours. Like David, sit before the Lord in prayer. Like David, as you're near to him, submit to God's will. And like David, trust in his goodness and grace. Let's pray. And we're gonna come to the Lord's order, sing, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper in a second. Lord, we, uh, we join our prayers this morning with David's final line his prayer in this chapter. May it please you to bless the house of your servants, and may we live continually before your face and in your care. For you, O oh Lord, have spoken to us in your Son, and with his blessing we shall be blessed forever. And may we walk in that confidence and rest in that peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.